There was a time in the history of Judah, of the southern kingdom, the people of God, they got information, that, that information started coming in that uh, Assyria had moved against Judah. And during that time, Assyria would wipe out over 50 cities of Judah, including the city of Lachish. And there are uh, surviving archaeo- there are surviving artifacts that actually show pictures of this horrible atrocities, these horrible atrocities against the cities of Judah, and in particular, even pictures of the terrible things that the Assyrians did to the city of Lachish in Judah. It was during this time that God put a burden on the heart of a prophet. And the prophet's name was Nahum. And we have his book, one of the minor prophets, minor again only because of the size of the book, not because of their weight, because they are uh, in inspired writ in the Bible. And the book of Nahum begins like this, the burden against Nineveh, capital of Assyria, right? The burden of the oracle Against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. Scholars really aren't really sure where uh, this is, where he, where he was from. Uh, not exactly sure what Elkoshite means, but some have guessed that Nahum was from Capernaum, because that's what the name Capernaum means, village of Nahum. It takes, again, only six minutes to read the book of Nahum. So you might just, if you don't think the message sounds that interesting, just read your Bible tonight, and I'm sure you'll be edified. Um, he was a prophet to Nineveh. His burden was to, to Nineveh. So he's going to speak the burden that God gave him to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, but he is also a prophet to Judah. And the main audience, you want to kind of read, the main audience is... Judah, God's people. Now, it's a terrible prophecy with not a ray of hope in it for Nineveh. Not a bit of, not even an appeal to repent to Nineveh. It is a dark, frightening, violent uh, expression of God's judgment against this people. And so, but Nahum's name means comfort. True to his name, however, he is comforting the main audience of the book. The people who aren't going to be bothered by Nineveh anymore. The people of Judah. So we want to recognize, you know, one of the best things that you can do when you study a book of the Bible, it's a little bit like I mentioned this morning, is ask, well, who is the author and who is the audience? What was the setting of the original audience? And that's why I told you this little gentle, happy bedtime story about Lachish, because it was in that context that God gave this burden to Nahum. The people of God are are trembling with fear because these bloodthirsty Assyrians are swooping down on them. It's at this time that God says to Nahum, here's a burden. I want you to tell my people that the people of Nineveh are going to be, that the, that the, the city of Nineveh is going to be completely wiped out. And that's the, that's the comfort of the burden of Nahum. There are two scenes. By the way, this is approximately a hundred years after the prophecy of Jonah and the, and the experience of Jonah. So remember what happened with Jonah. Jonah eventually ends up in Nineveh after a little persuasion and a long deputation, if you recall. And when he gets to Nineveh, he cries out against the city. And what happens in the city? They repent. hundred years later, their repentance has gone cold. And even though they've had great light and God sent them a prophet in a very unique way, delivered him by way of big fish, right? They have now turned back from serving God. He's going to judge them. This was 
this prophecy was a hundred years after the prophecy of Jonah. There are two scenes in the book. The first scene is a scene of a divine warrior delivering Judah. That's the first chapter. And in it doesn't come immediately to name the parties. Doesn't talk about Judah. Doesn't immediately talk about Judah. Doesn't immediately talk about Assyria or their capital, Nineveh. It's almost as if God wants us to get set in our mind as we study a book like this. These are timeless principles that can be applied to other times. It was as if God knew we would sit here tonight and realize there are forces that threaten godly people even now. And the way that God would comfort his people in the past, he will comfort his people in the present. The second in chapters 2 and 3 are a series of oracles that describe the imminent, that means it's going to happen any time, the imminent destruction of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Again, there are timeless principles that are emphasized. The book is intended to reveal the character of God. And it does. Both, you know, in, in two major parts of God's character that we often talk about. His holiness or His justice, His righteousness, and His eagerness to be merciful. He's not going to show mercy to Nineveh at all. But there is great mercy in this book for God's people when He comes through to defend them. I like Warren Wearsby. He, I've, I met Warren Wearsby and have corresponded with Warren Wearsby. And Warren W. Wearsby, who was cool before the web, you know, his initials are WWW. Um, he had an artful and alliterated outline of this, which I am going to borrow and share with you tonight. And I'm going to show it to you right here. Chapter 1, God is jealous and Nineveh is going to fall. Let's read a little bit of this. God is jealous, verse 2, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. But he's great in power and great in power and will not acquit the wicked. You see this? Do you hear this kind of common chorus that's repeated over and over again? God is merciful. He's good. Don't test him. God is eager to give mercy. Don't test him. He's also righteous and he will not acquit the wicked. It's like Nineveh had its chances. And so then the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, the clouds and the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Verse 4, he dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. This is Bashan. That's the Golan Heights Carmel. That's over by Haifa. Did I tell you I've been there? Yeah, I think I said that. And the flower of Lebanon wilts. He's just kind of going around the Middle East, the Holy Land. He's saying, God's in control of all of this. He's in charge of all of this. Nothing's too big. Nothing's too strong. Nothing's too proud. He's in control. This is a principle you want to understand. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. And the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. How can he say these things together? It's like he's going to throw down fire from heaven. He's good. Well, you got you got to get the idea that this is Judah that's the main audience here. And they're like feeling the hot breath of Assyria on their neck. And they're sure they're going to be Assyria's next victim. And Assyria, when they, when they come in, they, they are very, very ugly, very, very violent. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And God says, and God said to them, God is good. He will judge wicked people like that. God is good. And show his goodness by this judgment. That's what verse seven says. He knows those who trust him. 
God knows who has the black hats and who has the white hats, right? Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make utter end of this place. And we're going to see this is going to be, going to, this may be literally true, right? The darkness will pursue his enemies. And what do you conspire against the Lord? What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not arise a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they'll be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Question, you're reading this and you're reading the prophecy of Nahum. He didn't cook it up on his own. He got it from God. It's a burden from God, an oracle from God. God, And this one is probably a written oracle, not a spoken oracle. So he's like, write this down. And it's it's interesting because in later archaeological discoveries, they discovered there is some legal language and there are kind of legal, um, like boilerplate legal kinds of things that would Assyrian people would recognize. This is a legal paper against Nineveh. And they would recognize it as such. It's sophisticated writing. And he says to them, here's what's going to happen to you. And, and, and uh, this is um, those who rise up against God. This is what's going to happen to them. And gives that. Verse 14 says, the Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image, and I will dig your grave, and, and for you are vile. It, it's, it's a lot of detail. Now, here's the question that I was going to ask a minute ago. So you think any of this is going to happen in literal and specific fulfillment? You know, people that believe the Bible literally get a lot of bad press, right? People are like, you don't believe the Bible literally, do you? People say that to you often. You don't take it literally, right? You have people tell you that where you witness to them. They're like, you don't take it literally, do you? Well, it's not all to be taken literally. If a part is particularly figurative, it's it's a figurative expression of something that's going to literally happen or has literally happened. We believe the Bible is accurate and true. In a passage like this, when it talks about the warriors are going to be drunken, but they're going to be covered up with fire, and the church are going to be destroyed, and the enemy is going to come in like a flood, and there will be water and fire. Do you think that will really happen literally? Or do you think this might be just a figurative thing? Let's just keep that in mind, okay? Keep it in mind. So you have in chapter 1, there's an interesting thing that's quoted in, 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 in Romans, 4, uh, Romans 10. That's, it comes out of this passage. And it's kind of interesting. What have we seen so far? We've seen this basically. God is jealous and he is violent against those who resist his uh, offers of repentance. But then every once in a while he comes in and he says, and he's, and he's good and he's faithful. And this is, again, the, the message to Judah. Look at verse 15, though. Chapter 1, verse 15 is quoted in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, right? This is, what's the good news that they're bringing here? Good news is, guess what? You know your worst enemy? They are going down. And that city, it's going down for good. Verse 15, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and proclaims peace. So if you read that in Romans and you get the wrong idea, you get this idea of kind of like this light tripping, happy, joyful, hey, I have good news, you know. It's not that. It's like, it's like warrior news. It's manly talk. It's like, guess what? Our enemies are defeated. Got good news. We wiped out the enemy. God has wiped out the enemy. We're no longer going to worry about them. And he proclaims peace. Judah, keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows. You get to do what you so want to do, and that is worship God without interference from these godless people. 
For the wicked shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You get this? I mean, it's really clear. God wants His faithful people to be encouraged that their enemies will not ultimately succeed against them. That's just so contemporary. Isn't it? You just like, feel that even now. So you have there, that's how Warren Wiersbe put it, God is jealous and Nineveh will fall. Chapter 2 God is judge and how Nineveh will fall. Lots of detail in chapter 2 about how Nineveh is going to fall. Now, you understand, here is, here is Nahum, and he's giving a bold and specific prediction. This isn't just a general thing. We think maybe someday this, these people will pass or this city will pass. This is a very, very, very detailed and bold uh, prophecy that says that Nineveh as a city is going to be decimated. In chapter 2, he who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches, and the shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. Chariots come with flaming torches. By the way, this is guy movie stuff, Right? You know when the girls go out of town and you watch a movie with explosions and mayhem and, you know, that kind of thing? That would be like this. This is the kind of movie that you would watch. There's no romance here at all. Sorry, ladies. This is just like bright and loud and pretty cool. <laughs> this is one. You could make a real serious movie out of this. Just saying. Uh, the spears are brandished and the chariots rage in the streets. By the way, let me interrupt myself here. You know, uh, Assyria was... Uh, was uh, bloodthirsty, and they were especially to be feared because of this weaponry that they had. You know what it was? Chariots. If you had chariots, imagine if you're a foot soldier with crude implement and you've got people with more advanced weaponry and chariots to run you down. That's just intimidating. And over and over again, it's in Psalm 46 too, when you have kind of a hint of this, be still and know that I'm God, may have been written about the, the siege of Sennacherib. This is, Sennacherib was a king of Assyria, and they, hey, and this is what Assyria did. This is, they're good for the, good at this kind of thing. They would lay siege to a city for a long, long, long time. Because in the Middle Eastern, in the near, in, 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 they would often have, uh, stores of water saved up for this very reason. And so they could outlast their enemy for a long time. But Sennacherib and his armies would come and they would lay siege. And they would lay siege, say, to Jerusalem. But then in, in Psalm 46, you know, there is, a, there is a secret source of water which God has given to us. If you read Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. It's probably in that same context. This is probably the historical setting for Psalm 46. But that's kind of an aside that's extra, no extra charge here tonight. Here we have God is a judge and how Nineveh is going to fall. And, and there's this mention of, of, you know, people in uniform, the scarlet and chariots and, and implements of war. And it's a scary kind of a thing. And um, it goes on in verse uh, 4 and says, They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. There's just a description of chaos here. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to their walls and the defense is prepared. And the gates... Of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved and is decreed. Keep that in mind. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. Her maid servants shall lead her as with a voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they will flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. In other words, this is a description of a rout. The leaders are turning and running, and the people are, can't be stopped. 
And then there's spoil, right? There's silver and there's gold. They sweep in and they take all the valuables. And this is an advanced culture with lots of valuables. And so it says in verse 9, they take the spoil of silver. They take the spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She's empty, desolate, waste. The heart melts, the knees shake, much pain on every side, and all their faces are drained of color. This is a vivid description of a serious, serious overthrow of a city, right? Verse 13 says, and this is probably the most chilling point in the book, and you often will find this in this kind of literature, is the main things in the middle. It's kind of the structure that's often used, main thing in the middle, right? Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. That's a chilling thing. You don't want God to say, behold, or pay attention, I'm against you. You just don't want that. We don't want God to be against us. Give me a moment for a bit of political commentary, can I? You ever notice that you listen to the average American, even the Christian, and you, what do you hear when you're talking about politics and the presidential campaigns and all that? What's the big talk? It's all about, the big thing is about the economy, stupid. Remember that? I mean, I'm not calling you stupid. I'm just, that's an old saying you may have heard. It's the economy, right? Because that's what Americans care. Put a chicken in my pot, right? That's what Americans care about. I need a job. My kids need jobs. We got bills to pay. So just tell me that you're going to pull a rabbit out of the hat here. And, you, you know, I don't really care if you kill babies. I don't really care if you fornicate. I don't really care if you don't care about Israel. I just want you to tell me you're going to give me money. It's like... um you know, here's the thing that America ought to care about. I don't know a lot about politics or know who to vote for yet, you know. I don't. Here's one thing I do know. You want God on your side, right? You don't want, you want God on your side. This is the point I'm saying here as Christian people. I think you probably don't need me to tell you this, but America will prosper if God is on her side. Right? America will prosper if God is on her side. Even if we don't know what we're doing, we'll prosper if God is on our side. And so if we defend the unborn, and if we say what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong, and if we have the heart of God and we, and we have the blessing of God, then He will give us wisdom in our economy and He will give us work and He will give us jobs. He will do whatever it is to, or He will give us something that's better than jobs that maybe would be a, a higher kind of a thing than physical or financial prosperity. That's my little political commentary, which I do not apologize for making. Verse 13, behold, I am against you. You don't want God to be against you. That's the main thing. You want God to be for you. So you, when you vote or when you, you know, think about anything, you just want to say, God, what do you want? How, how can I see, you know, I, I want to be on your side. I want you to be on my side. So, so here you have um, the first two. God is jealous and he says that Nineveh will fall. And the jealous is good with God, by the way. He has every right to be jealous. So you read James chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The spirit who dwells in you, verse 5, chapter 4, says the spirit who dwells in you lusts to envy. The idea is the Holy Spirit lives in you and has every right to be jealous of your affections. God has the right to your affections. He's jealous. He's judge. He will tell how Nineveh will fall. And we got that description in chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, he is just. And he gives a reason why Nineveh falls because they're bloody because they're bloodthirsty because they're violent woe to the bloody city it is full of lies and robbery its victim never departs 
The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels and a galloping horses and clattering of chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword, glittering spear. There's a multitude slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. He's saying, you're violent, you're bloodthirsty, you attack innocent people, you lie. I heard all of that, I saw that, you're going to be judged for this. And they stumble over corpses because of a multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot. And then this thing gets really R-rated. It's ugly. You can just read that. Basically, God says, I'm going to expose you for who you are. You're a harlot. And it gives some detail that's really difficult to read right there. I'm going to make you vile, make you a spectacle. People will pass by. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to grieve over you, he's saying. Verse 11, you also will be drunk. You'll be hidden. You will seek refuge from the enemy. Verse 13, the gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire will devour, devour the bars of your gates. Remember that, okay? Remember that. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. That's ironic. See, it's irony. It's like you who go around besieging everyone, you're going to be besieged now. That's what, as a matter of fact, the irony of this is that Assyria, one of the ways that Assyria rules is by intimidation. Do you guys remember when in the first um, Iraq war, when Saddam Hussein said something like, um, he, he got on the radio, you heard him on the radio, and he, he, did, he did something that was very much like folks would do in a culture like this. They, they say, the blood is going to run up to your neck. Said something like that. Remember that? And you're just like, oh. Man, I hope he's wrong. They, they did a lot of that. Look in Isaiah 38, Sennacherib's. You get Sennacherib's language in Isaiah 38. They, they're trying to be intimidating. This is why they would actually commission artwork of really horrible atrocities so that you would see that and you would just kind of give in. This is what we're going to do to you. Are you sure you want to mess with me? This is the way they would do that. And so, in other words, they were kind of like bold and they were they were violent, they were aggressive, and they were uh, they, they would display their atrocities as if they were proud of them in order to intimidate. And that's the same nature of the book right here. So in other words, they would mock, and this is God says, I'm going to commission a mockery of you. I'm going to mock you like you've mocked other people. I'm going to trash talk you like you trash talk other people. The more you read the Bible, the more you admire God and His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. You'll see that a little bit more a little bit later. I keep saying later, and I'm going to have a lot of stuff to cover here. So let's talk a little bit about the question that just kind of comes to your mind, okay? Here is Nineveh, and Nineveh is a great city. And again, this is guy drama. This is guy movie stuff, high drama. The prophecy is brief, but it's full of this noise and full of tumult and full of war and fire and flood and scarlet tunics and chariots and horses and flashing metal. And the dread of Assyria... It, he says the dread of Assyria is going to be humbled. It's going to be ended. Now, this is a great city. Again, uh, Jonah, and the prophet Jonah, he says this great, God calls Nineveh this great city. It is a great city. Nineveh is a proud city, a violent city, a city that's built to last. The modern city of Mosul, Iraq, in the northern part of Iraq, is just across the river from where ancient uh, Nineveh was. Um. It's where it stands today and actually spills over as well to the east. The, the ancient city of Nineveh was surrounded by walls. You may have heard this over a hundred feet high and the towers ascended above the, the, the walls another one hundred feet. There were, the, the walls were so thick and you may have heard this as well that three chariots could ride abreast on top of the walls. And there were 48 miles of walls 
all surrounded by moat 60, uh, 60 feet deep and 100 feet wide. This was a spectacle of a city, the greatest city in the ancient world, impregnable, a powerful city, a spectacle of a city. It was a great city. 600,000 inhabitants, they think, a big city. And so Assyria was a force for stability and a force for prosperity, and it influenced culture, it influenced language. There was an advanced culture there at that time. Assyrians constructed arches and tunnels and aqueducts and the first botanical and zoological gardens. The, the great cuneiform library was there. And the last major monarch, Ashurbanipal, who was the grandson of Sennacherib, would gather this huge library, a huge, huge advanced library of thousands of pieces in this library. The cuneiform, you may wonder, what is cuneiform? What is this? The idea is um, a cuneiform would be um, a, a tablet upon which um, a language was written, but the language would be in the idea of ideograms or pictures, a little bit like this. Imagine that I wanted to tell my, my wife I love her, but I didn't want to write I love you, and so I'd draw her an eyeball and a heart <laughs> and a you. She would know. She would know that I love her. She'd say I'd rather have flowers, but an ideogram or a cuneiform... That might be, that might thrill her. Nonetheless, there were, probably not, but it might. Nonetheless, there was a library of 10, of 10,000 cuneiform and thousands of other things on wax and parchment, a huge library. Not all of which they wrote themselves. They would just like, all they would have to do is go intimidate other people and tell about their various atrocities and so forth. And the people would turn over whatever they wanted to them. And so Ashurbanipal, grandson of Sennacherib, gathered this huge library. Now the question is, how do we know this? Did any of you wonder that? Or the other question is, okay, here's this prophecy. Now, this to me is like, every time you study the Bible, you should ask, what's the big question? What's the big question to answer? You know, this is the way my mind works. I think it helps. Every time you study the Bible, think this way. So when you read this, you read this thing, and what does it say? It says, Nineveh, you're going down. And let me tell you why you're going down and how you're going down. Okay, so what's the question then? Thank you. Who said that? Who said that? Yes, that was the right answer, of course. Did they go down? That's the question, man. Did they go down? That's the question I'm reading. I'm like, did that happen? Would we know if that happened? It was kind of funny because I talked to a lady, a faithful Christian lady, and I was just kind of bouncing off this message idea off this lady. And she's like, well, of course it happened. It's in the Bible. She didn't say it quite like that. But she says, yeah, it happened. It's in the Bible. It's like, that's kind of like, Lois says, God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? It's in the Bible. Well, if God said it happened, I don't, I don't need anybody to show me a movie. I, it happened. Amen. So that's true. That's true. But what is interesting is that when he gives this bold prediction of Nineveh's fall, it has so much detail in it. And so Nahum boldly predicts the fall in detail. And about 650 B.C., he predicts that the greatest city and the greatest empire in the world at the time would not only be defeated, but that it would be completely destroyed, that it would completely cease to exist, and that it would not be rebuilt. That's some big talk. Nahum leaves no margin for error in his prophecy. He's very specific in much detail in this prediction. He said the city gates would be destroyed. That the Ninevites would be drunk during the final attack. That Nineveh's walls and gates would be destroyed in the great flood. That fire would be involved. That much of the city would be burned with fire. He said that there would be a great massacre, a great rout of people. There would be a great quality of plunder. Too much plunder to count would be carried away from the city. That Assyrian officers would flee their post. 
and that Nineveh's destruction would be final. That is a serious prediction. This is a serious series of predictions. He doesn't just say, I think they may pass away. He gives all that detail. And so the question is, did Nahum's prophecy come to pass? And the answer is, yes, it did. And it came to pass in terrifying detail. Amazingly, it's all happened in 612 B.C., backed up by archaeologists and historians in a way that's just shocking. It's amazing. This is one of the times when it's really fun to be a pastor because, like, I have to preach on this. I'm like, I get to study this this week. It was amazing to study this. It was, thank you for letting me do this. It was amazing to study this. Just like, wow. It's incredible. 612 B.C., the city was destroyed so completely that when Alexander the Great fought the Battle of Arbella, Nearby in 331, he didn't even know Nineveh had ever been there. Nineveh simply ceased to exist overnight. Nobody knew where it had been for almost 2,600 years. No one even knew where the city had been. And then there was a guy, Sir Austin Henry Laird, who discovered it on the Tigris River in the year 1847. And when he discovered it, because of the way the city fell, the suddenness of the way the city fell, there was this, uh, there were thousands of things that were preserved in the archaeology of it exactly the way the Bible said. You didn't even tell you that, but that's the way it happened. The prediction was that Nineveh would be overthrown in a flood, and that's precisely what did occur. The Tigris River overflowed its banks. The flood destroyed a part of Nineveh's Great Wall. Babylonians from southern Iraq and Medes from Iran invaded through this breach, invaded through this breach, and they plundered the city and they set it on fire, 612 B.C. The site of Nineveh was not discovered until 1842, and when it was discovered, it was excavated with shocking details discovered that harmonized with the biblical account in incredible ways. You can read it yourself on the internet. They may have manipulated the water flow. The enemy may have manipulated the water flow strategically in order to create a breach where they could pour into the city and take it. There were hundreds and hundreds of fascinating archaeological discoveries that confirm the color and the account, what, what we have before us right here in Scripture. The answer to the question that kind of hangs in our heart, did this really happen, is absolutely it happened, exactly the way the Bible said that it would happen one Assyrian ruler boasted, the nobles I flayed. You know what that means? He skinned them. This is not for the weak. He reported, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I'm sorry. What I'm reading here is this is how Assyrians behave to other people, okay? And he writes this down himself because he wants a reputation. He wants this on his baseball card. You mess with me, this is what I might do to you and your people, just so you know, okay? So he says, I cut off the hand, not me, I'm quoting. <laughs> I'm an innocent, harmless man myself, okay? Um, I, <laughs> I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses, ears, and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned as a holocaust. This is just ugly stuff. It's the way the people were. So Assyria ruled by intimidation. And that's why they documented their atrocities so well. And in the end, they would leave behind this clear, unmistakable documentation for the world to see one day when the ruins of their city were discovered that would, like, cry out against them and a witness against them. The people were destroyed. question is, then, that comes to my mind is, if you misread this, what you can read is, I see the Assyrians were completely wiped out. I actually misspoke myself early in the message. You maybe caught, maybe you saw me catch myself. Did the Assyrian people get completely wiped out? Is that what the Bible says? Or did the city of Nineveh get completely wiped out? city of Nineveh. The Bible is very, very precise. Matter of fact, you get to the end of this uh, 
this book and it says, your shepherds slumber, verse 18, O king of Assyria, your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains. People are scattered on the mountains. You don't have to be a big scholar to find out there are still people that claim Assyrian heritage today. The people are scattered. As a matter of fact, interesting, some of them are Christian in some form or another and they're persecuted people and they're scattered around the Middle East even now. And they have like interesting, this is a very interesting stuff to read. But the city is, this is what, precisely what the passage said, that the city would be destroyed, and it was. And the people were scattered, and they were. Let me give you some applications uh, here tonight. There are just a couple, like 40 minutes each. I'm just kidding. Why do I do that? You know, that's, that's lame. Um, okay, truth to remember one, don't rely on old awakenings. Now think about Nineveh, right? What, what this is just sprung into my heart when I studied this right away. Nineveh, that went down in this horrible way, had experienced an awakening from God. Nineveh had experienced an awakening from God. It had gotten kind of old. It was a long time ago. So they forgot about it. And somebody didn't pass the stories on. Somebody wasn't faithful. Some grandpas and grandmas weren't faithful to say, don't ever forget what happened when that knucklehead guy with the bleached white face that was in the belly of the great fish got belched up on the beach and he came to be a missionary. And everybody, we put sack, remember we put sackcloth on the animals and the, and the people and the animal and they called a fast and the people and the animals fasted. And then God gave this great, great revival and there was this wonderful time of an awakening. We have the distant, vague, mystery, misty memory of that in American history. You can read about it a little bit, especially going back to the first great awakening in America. Kind of set the sail, put the wind in the sails for our great nation, the great awakening. We have just kind of a distant memory in a, as a nation of revival. America has had the privilege of revival. But we have this danger of relying on old awakenings, something that happened to our grandparents or even longer ago than that. And this can happen like in a smaller way too. It's like, yeah, you remember a time when you were closer to the Lord than you are right now. Be careful. This is just an application. Nineveh knew better. The Bible says in Luke 12, 48, for everyone to whom much is given, Jesus said, from whom much is given, much will be required. To whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. Interestingly enough, in the time of Jonathan Edwards, you, uh, this interesting book I've been reading about the history of revival in America. There's a little incident that I read in this book this week that Jonathan Edwards would preach, and there was a slave that could mimic him pretty well. People thought that was pretty interesting, that this slave could mimic Jonathan Edwards' this voice inflection and what he said. He was actually very good at it. So a guy who was just kind of like a um, blasphemous guy hired him. And he said, hey, I want you to somebody do that preaching thing like pretend you're Edwards. And he got his buddies all kind of gathered around and he had the slave preach. And the slave took the money, but then as he preached, he just with a steely gaze just began to deliver a genuine message on the words of Jonathan Edwards, including what happens to blasphemers. And according to the record, there were those who were converted that have, were savingly converted and still walk with the Lord. This is just a little tiny touch, a little taste of some of the wonderful things that have happened in the history of this great nation when we took God seriously back in a time of an awakening. That's what God's people need to do more than any other thing. Not organize ourselves better, not talk louder or more persuasively, but bend the knee and plead with God that He again would bless this nation, that we would 
repent of our sins, if as a church and as Christian people that unbelieving people would be converted, that they would repent and not live on the the fumes of old awakenings. It's possible to have a genuine awakening, but then lose the fire of it and revert back to a dark place of defeat. It's true nationally. It's true individual churches. It's true of families. It can be true of you too. You know that's true. Every generation is influenced by past generations. It must answer for itself and apprehend God personally and be apprehended by God in its own fresh way. You need to know God and meet God and have your own revival. I don't care how old you are or what you can tell me about what you used to be or used to have in the past. You need something fresh from God right now. So it's a dangerous and deadly thing to live on the past revival and awakening. It can end badly, and that's what happened with Nineveh. And the second and the last thing is God will deliver His people. And this is the big, clear takeaway. God will deliver His people. This may be the main thing. God, that's what He's saying. I want you to know, and this is really a fascinating thing to think of during a time when you have godless people who reject Jesus Christ, who are terrorists, who mete out terror against other innocent people. And then we ask the question, God... Here we are, you're, you know, America has a lot of Christians and we have this Christian heritage. How can you let these godless people do this terror and violence against us? And, you know, I don't want to put words in God's mouth. Can I say just very carefully, this is how God works and has always worked. And if he uses somebody to judge people who had a past experience at revival, he's also going to judge them. You want to be aware that God's going to judge everybody. God's going to judge you and me, and he's going to, unless, of course, his son, the Lord Jesus, steps in, and in the beauty of the cross, he takes our punishment, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Other than that, we all are headed for judgment. God will deliver his people. He sometimes uses ruthless, godless people to judge his people who have a godly heritage, but God will eventually judge all nations, all peoples answer to God. And that's interesting in the light of modern terrorism. It, you ever watch a, a scary movie? And they got this, per, to make a movie really, really bad scary, you've got a person that's just the epitome of evil, right? Like Bo Schembechler, I don't know, somebody, you know. Woody Hayes, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Yeah, just the epitome of evil. Just bad, you know, just awful bad. Worse than that. Just aw- and they make them really bad. They do terrible things. As the movie goes on, the person does worse and worse things until you're like, ah, this person is so evil. And then nobody can kill them, right, in the movie. It's like an archetype in literature. Nobody can kill this person. They just keep coming back, right? And this is what, the, this is what I get here. You know, kind of like, these people are so wicked. And it just seems like they have nine lives and they just keep coming back. This prophecy of Nahum is a comfort because he's saying, these people, you don't have to worry, they're not coming back to plague you anymore. It's over. When God decides he's going to deal with our enemies, he's going to deal with our enemies. More importantly, when God decides to deal with his enemies, he's going to deal with his enemies. You don't want to be his enemy. You don't want to be against you. You want to wrap yourself in Christ. You want to wrap yourself in Christ. Remind yourself every day that you're hidden in Christ. That you're hidden in Christ. And a cross is the thing that you go back to over and over. The gospel is that which you go back to over and over again. Wrap yourself in that truth. Interestingly enough, you know, you kind of want to ask of every Bible passage, uh, where is Christ in this? Do I see a 
hint of Christ or picture of Christ. Of course, this morning, wasn't it interesting how the Lord put us... He did it. I mean, this is something... I'm not smart enough to arrange stuff like this, but we talk about Nineveh this morning because we just happened to get there in Matthew chapter 12, and we're talking about Nineveh tonight as if I was smart enough to arrange this kind of thing. Pastor Pine, you know I'm not that smart. We can, well, I can barely get you the stuff on time for the, for the choir songs to go good with the messages on time. If that happened, it's like human thing. This is divine. God says, I want you to talk to them about Nineveh. And I want you to remind them about Nineveh. This is just whew, this is interesting stuff. Jesus was kind of like, Jesus was in Jonah, right? This is the picture of the resurrection. But you can't miss the character of God and the future of Jesus Christ when you read and when you study this prophecy. Because the motif of the book is clearly holy war, spiritual warfare. Didn't we have this morning, the battle belongs to the Lord, and tonight He is our hiding place. Catch that? Battle belongs to the Lord. Is that this morning or tonight? This morning, yeah. And tonight, he is our hiding place. Isn't there something pathetic in the right kind of way about that? He is our hiding place. Pathetic as in pathos. Oh, he is my hiding place. And the battle belongs to the Lord. The motif in the book is war. And those who would rise up again. In Christ, God is the conqueror. And Christ is the conqueror in the Bible, if you read the whole book, right? Let me give you some examples as we quit. Matthew 25. 41, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 11, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. New Testament, remember, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, same God. God of the Old Testament is a God of justice and a God of mercy. God of the New Testament is a God of justice, a God of mercy, same God, immutable, never changes. Jesus is not, remember, it's not good cop, bad cop, bad cop in the Old Testament, good cop in the New Testament. It's not like that. Get that out of your mind. This is Jesus now. This is the Jesus that they're not going to tell you about in our culture. Second Peter 3, 8 and verse 10, the day of the Lord will come suddenly, like a thief, suddenly, in which the heavens and the earth will pass away, the roar, the elements of it will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Acts 17.31 is another example. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Revelation 20 and verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open. Another book was open. The book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things were written in the books. That makes you think, doesn't it? Does that make you think? <laughs> I ought to make you think. Let me read one more. This is just, I'm giving you just a feel for what the Bible says about who Jesus is ultimately and what he's going to do. This is one you should like hear. Revelation 19.11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him called faithful and true. In, in righteousness he judges and makes work. Let me interrupt my reading and just say this. You may not be all that smart. Although I think you're bright folks, you know. You may not be all that smart. You may not be a scholar. You may not have had the privilege of advanced education. But if you read the Bible like a kid, you can see who wins in the end here. Right? I mean, you know he wins. You want to be on his side in the end. You don't have to be that sharp. Okay, let me just keep going. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written like no one knew, no one knew except himself. He's clothed a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who's that? 
Armies in heaven following, clothed in the righteousness, in the symbolic righteousness. Follow him on white horses. Let your imagination run wild. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I wonder tonight. Knowing who this king is and how he has every right to, to rule, will you, same thing as this morning, will you seek him for like a fresh awakening tonight? I suggest that you seek him for a fresh awakening. Years ago, I go to bed every night. I think I told you this before. Go to bed every night and pray for God to save my Uncle Bill. Man, Arlene knew the Lord, but my Uncle Bill, he knew the Bible. He knew the gospel. He knew the truth. My grandpa witnessed to him. My dad witnessed to him all the time. Marlene got saved. Marlene got saved. Uncle Bill was just a tough nut to crack. You're drinking, kind of. I mean, you probably know a lot of guys like this. He was a great guy. He was a good guy, a nice guy in a lot of ways. But he's a drinker, and sometimes the drink led him to things that were hard and difficult for his family, his wife. And so every night he was a part of our prayers. God, please save my Uncle Bill. I remember as a kid thinking, you know, we're just going to pray this all our lives, and it ain't going to happen. And I think you know I've told you the part of this story before, and that is that my Aunt Marlene got breast cancer about the time I graduated from college, and we went to her funeral, and she died, and Uncle Bill was devastated, and after that, he goes back to Maple Avenue Christian Union Church on a Sunday night. Bob Carter was the pastor there, and my Uncle Bill got really, really, really saved. Really saved. <laughs> I mean, his life totally changed. He wasn't a young guy either, but he got changed we were going to Knoxville one time to conference, and I was excited about going to this conference. We're, down, we're going down I-75 on the way to this conference. You guys remember this? <laughs> I never remember. Never forget this. So we're just having our family vacation. We're going to this conference. We're going down I-75. And, we're, you know, it's in Kentucky, and, and we're just across the river when you get into those big hills, you know, and, and you know, the trucks are jockeying for position, and there's a guy up here with the fifth wheel with a big trailer behind it, and and I gonna I think I'm gonna pass this guy, you know, and get in front of somebody else and go around me, and the kids start going, Hey, it's your Uncle Bill. It's like I never forget. It's Uncle Bill. I'm like, Are you serious? And I'm like, I'm a social guy, so I'm just running off the road, you know. So I'm like, it's my seriously my uncle Bill. I'm like waving at him, and he's like, What in the world? You know, he's like, finally we get pulled over together, you know, there, and there's some Uncle Bill and his new wife, Billy. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm on, we're on their way to a Bible conference. What are you doing? I'm on my way to a missions trip. Me and Billy are going on a missions trip. They got, they got into a Southern Baptist church and just got fired up about God, fired up about evangelism, fired up about Jesus. I mean, just seriously. You remember that day? And they said, got us a Diet Coke. You're laughing because you remember all the details of that day. Back in their fifth wheel, we're sitting by the side of the road, off the side of the road, where we almost died. And, and my Uncle Bill is just so fired up about Jesus, so fired up about the things of the Lord. Now, why did I tell you that story? Because I wanted to give you hope that even though you're not a spring chicken anymore, you can have a fresh touch from God and your life complete, completely different than what it was before. I know because I got that in my own family. I'm here to tell you tonight, you can change. You can be something you were never before if you get God's help. He didn't give any more hope to Nineveh, but the very book is hope for his people. It's comfort. That's what his name means, Nahum. It's comfort for us. And I trust that you will just resolve by the grace of God and with the help of God to seek a higher ground. And that's how I want to end tonight, singing number 462.
just want you to sing with me, higher ground, and mean it with your heart.